All right. Well, thank you all for joining us. Uh, this is the Fats, Fuels, and Oils forecast for the week of November 23rd. Um, we're going to go into some veg oils today, and Tori is also going to take us into biofuels. Um, Tori, would you like to take it from here? I would. Thanks, George. So like George said, we're going to do a little bit different uh, routine today. We're going to start in veg oils and then transition into uh, biofuels. Uh, so for soybean oil and in veg oils, generally, uh, we've seen prices come off a little bit uh, over the past couple of days. If you just looked at the chart and you didn't know anything at all about uh, veg oil fundamentals, I think the chart suggests that prices might be rolling over a little bit. However, given the fundamentals, I think that uh, prices can still probably remain well supported, maybe not at the extremes that we've seen recently. Um, but prices remain well supported into the first quarter of, of 2021. And then uh, once we hit sort of the, the bottom in the seasonal um, decline in, in palm oil production, then I think we have probably the first chance for a real decline in, um, in veg oil prices. That, that bottom roughly aligns with uh, harvest starting in South America. And so not only do you have the potential for an increase in supply in Malaysian palm oil, but you also have the potential for an uh, increase in supply from uh, South America. Now, of course, that supply from South America is contingent on South America growing a, a big crop. And we came into the growing season with expectations of, of record production. Those have been tempered quite a bit by La Nina and, and early season dryness. Um, but for soybeans, really, if, if you can keep the plants alive long enough to get to pod filling, then uh, yields are, are largely determined by uh, the rainfall during um, pod filling. So you can see in our forecast here, like I said, uh, we've come off a bit We've got a pretty wide range here in the nearby. That's just because the volatility has continued to be extreme with last week being the eighth week out of the last 10 that prices have moved by a cent or more, either up or down. Um, and so that wide range just reflects that volatility. I, th I think the volatility will calm down here uh, over the next four to six weeks. Um, but but we shall see. All right, so I wanted to start with uh, soybean oil domestic daily use, average domestic daily use. We got the NOPA report um, on the 16th, and you can see that the NOPA report that implies that domestic use of soybean oil has remained relatively strong. We expect that to, to moderate here a bit in November and in December. Um, but what I would say is that given some of the changes we'll talk about in a little bit, um, this might actually be stronger than, uh, than we're projecting just because we're expecting the demand for uh, soybean oil from biodiesel producers to be a little bit lower than we were uh, prior to the release of the EMTS data uh, from the EPA last week. But nonetheless, I think that um, the strength of domestic demand, particularly non-biodiesel demand, 
has been pretty impressive given price levels and basis levels that we've seen, especially in uh, October. And so uh, even if demand curtails a little bit, it's going to remain relatively close to uh, pretty high levels. Next year, we're expecting demand uh, in non-biodiesel demand specifically to taper off a little bit, especially as we get towards the end of the year, um, as renewable diesel production ramps up um, with the projects that have, have been announced coming online. Uh, so that gets us to our days of coverage chart. This is simply uh, month ending stocks divided by the uh, domestic use plus exports, the average daily domestic use plus exports for the next month. You can see that uh, that, that number has, um, has gotten relatively tight here in October. And, and again, this is implied by the, uh, the NOPA data, but we expect this to be um, we expect this number to build really into the first quarter. Uh, again, if non-biofuel domestic demand is a little bit stronger than we expect, these numbers could come down a, a little bit, but I think it will be difficult for stocks to remain as tight as they have been, just given uh, the typical increase in supply that we see shortly after harvest. The NOPA crush in October was a record. Crush margins have come off quite a bit um, since October. They've fallen about 30 cents from about a buck 30 to just under a buck in November. And so we don't expect record levels of crush uh, going forward, but we still expect crush to remain pretty robust due to strong demand for soybean meal from livestock producers that are not necessarily slaughtering more animals, but the animals that they're slaughtering are, are at record weights. And that record weight really implies a lot about soybean meal demand because uh, obviously animals eat more every day during the last stage of their life than they do uh, when they're younger. So the fact that, uh, that weights have gone up means that meal demand is probably going to remain pretty strong and so crush probably remains pretty strong and in soybean oil supplies probably remain um, ample so just diving into um into domestic demand a little bit and this will lead us into our conversation about uh biofuel you can see that uh for october for the data that we just got from the EIA, we're expecting soybean oil usage of more than 700 million pounds, which is pretty close to uh, the record level that we saw back in May, um, but not as strong as we're expecting it to be sort of next year at this time. And we also expect that to tail off here over the next couple of months, in part because of the changes that we've made to our biofuel production forecast, and also in part because of the percentage of the total feedstock mix that soybean oil uh, represents. So that rose pretty sharply right after the uh, outbreak of the pandemic, in part because 
ethanol production slowed and slaughter slowed. And so the availability of, of things like uh, distillers corn oil and tallow and um, choice weight grease were curtailed and all that was really left was soybean oil. Works the the um, last EIA report showed that soybean oil was about sixty percent of the total feedstock mix. We're expecting that to come down a little bit into the mid fifties uh, or high fifties, I suppose, over the course of the rest of this year. Kind of remain at that level in the first quarter of of twenty twenty one, but then start to build as we go through the rest of twenty twenty two as again this renewable diesel supply that comes online starts to suck up particularly the low ci feedstocks and leave biodiesel producers with few choices outside of of soybean oil so while we're ex while we're expecting a, a tick down in demand from biodiesel producers here over the next four to six months um, after that we expect soybean oil demand from biodiesel producers to rise pretty sharply and if you look at our forecast for soybean oil use in renewable diesel, it's just kind of straight up. Um, part of this is because uh, of the increase in capacity that we're predicting based on announcements that companies have made. Um, but part of this again is because as these renewable diesel producers come online, if you try to balance out the feedstock mix on a monthly basis, which is kind of how we set our forecast, you pretty quickly run out of, of low CI feedstocks. And until the EPA approves a pathway for canola oil, it doesn't really leave a lot of options outside of soybean oil. Now, in our, our forecast, we're assuming that the EPA uh, approves that pathway for canola oil by the end of 2021 or late in 2021. So that moderates the demand here a little bit for 21-22. Um, but given the relative expense of canola oil relative to uh, soybean oil, producers are still gonna probably choose soybean oil first and then canola oil, or, or most producers are probably going to choose soybean oil first and then canola oil. So it's not like we're going to have this big, huge flush of, of canola oil coming into the market, into the renewable fuel market. Uh, it's more like when people are out of other choices, they probably will choose uh, to use canola oil. Okay, so with that, let's take a look at biomass-based diesel forecast. We got, like I said, we got EMTS data for October um, last Thursday. And I think probably the biggest surprise, and in, it shouldn't really be a surprise, but it, it certainly was a break from the trend, was the production level. Um, and if you look at it relative to the hobo spread in particular, you see that October was more in line with the trend for 2020 uh, than September. And we've shown this chart a couple of times and typically in the past, we've kind of had a couple of lines here. One that was this yellow line sort of through the middle and then we had another one, an orange line that was raised. And the idea behind that was that the yellow line kind of represented the trend and then the orange line was sort of this new trend where Hobo spreads were really high, but the offset of rising RIN values 
kind of kept production above the level that would be implied by the hobo spread. All of that went away uh, with October, and we now we're just left with a trend line that that works pretty well. The hobo spread is not always a great predictor of of production, but you can see with the October data, it, it seems to line up. And as a result, what we've done is we've cut our forecast for production in November and December pretty sharply. Um, before we made the adjustments, December and November were kind of up here, but given where the hobo spread was trading before today, um, it looks to us more like production is going to be down here. It makes me feel better about the forecast because one of the things that had been in our forecast was a, a huge jump in production in, in December. And while typically we see sort of a, a surge in production in supplies in December as, as people try to meet their mandates, um, this year it was really unclear whether that would happen in part because usage is down um but we've also had strong production throughout the year and so it would the biggest question in my mind was will that need really be there and, and will we need to have that surge in production given what we saw for the october data i feel more comfortable with uh our december production at the current level relative to where we were before and of course, this isn't just outright production. This is production relative to the five-year average for each of the months. So I want to look a little bit into our forecast, a little bit deeper dive into our forecasts. Again, here you can see the, uh, the October production for D4 and D5 dropped pretty sharply from September. So in September, we produced uh, nearly 280 million gallons uh, under the D4 code, and that dropped to 215 in October. And so as a result, like I said, we kind of cut November. November's still up at 229, and uh, December's up at 328. This looks a little odd given what I just talked about, um, but the big cuts that we made were in, uh, were in biodiesel, we also reduced our forecast for renewable diesel production in in uh, November and December, but not to these to the same levels that we reduced our our biodiesel production. Renewable diesel production has been more the more volatile of the two series, and so it wouldn't necessarily surprise me if we saw renewable diesel production a little bit below where we're predicting it. Um, but until we get, I think, probably another month of, of data from the EMTS, it's going to be a little difficult to judge exactly where we're going to be in for this December number. But it wouldn't necessarily surprise me if next month we come back here and this December number is, is more in line with maybe September if we have a, uh, if we have a need for year-end balancing. Um, so it's, it's possible that this could be... Uh, quite a bit lower. All right. So this just looks at uh, comparison for biodiesel production from the EIA and renewable diesel, our forecast for renewable diesel production. The EIA 
number for biodiesel production doesn't always necessarily match up with the data from the EMTS. And one of the biggest deviations is in December, uh, in part because I think there's some things that go on in terms of, of meeting compliance in December that inflate the EMTS production data for December relative to the EIA. Nonetheless, the EIA numbers that we're predicting for November are 139 million gallons and then 145 million gallons for, uh, for December. And then here you can see our domestic renewable diesel production is at 48 and 59. Um, that's a big jump from the 22, 23 million gallons that we saw in October. And so that's why I say this is, this is the space where uh, that number in the previous chart might be substantially lower. If, if this number is, is closer to October or maybe somewhere between October and in September, and then December follows that same trend, that's where the reduction in, in the previous chart is likely to come from. For 2021, you can see that uh, we are expecting a, a big increase in renewable diesel production especially by the end of the year, and a relatively healthy increase in biodiesel production. The biodiesel production may be a little bit um, optimistic, but given what we're assuming about the mandates um, and the timing of the renewable diesel producers coming online, this is kind of where we're, where we're at today. So for... Domestic renewable diesel, just again, here we are with, um, with the October drop down. This is just a little bit cleaner look at this. You can see how far October was from where we've been in the past or the trend um, for this year. Uh, again, with the hobo spread so high, it's, it, it may be that, um, that November and December remain closer to this level. We'll see. Um, but then the other thing to note here is just really the, the big increase in production that we're expecting for, for next year. All right, with that, let's take a look at what we're expecting for gross margins. For gross margins without the uh, credits, we're expecting margins to tighten a, a little bit. Um, I think this is in part due to increases in uh, our forecast for um, feedstock demand or for feedstock prices, uh, at least in the in the near term, you can see for biodiesel, which in our assumptions includes more soybean oil. As prices come down, we're expecting a little bit of a, of a tick up in, um, in margins, but we don't expect a big move sort of, of one way or the other, I, th I think is the real bottom line here. Maybe a, a slight drift lower, potentially maybe a, a little bit drift higher, but not a big deviation from sort of the average that we've seen over the past couple of months. For RINs, uh, we're expecting the hobo spread to, to finally decline. I think today is probably the first step in that process where oil prices probably recover and the relationship between oil prices and feedstocks, both re as reflected by the hobo spread and then 
also for the spread between palm oil and, and, um, and gas oil. I think we've probably hit the peak there and, and those are uh, going to come down. And as those come down, it takes some of the pressure off RIN prices to provide that profitability that is lost due to the relatively high cost of feedstocks compared with uh, the cost of the output. Um, the other thing that I think is interesting about where our models are saying prices are going to go is earlier in the year we were projecting the spread between D4 and D6 to tighten up pretty significantly. And what we've seen, especially over the, the last couple of weeks, and in particular this week, that spread has, has widened out quite a bit. Typically, that spread narrows when people are worried about um, the blend wall for ethanol. And it's a little surprising to me that the models are, are, are discounting that concern a little bit more. Um, I think that this probably is, is a trend that maybe has, has almost reached its peak and, and maybe we'll start to um, tighten those spreads up a little bit. Um, but this is kind of what the model's telling us is gonna happen here, uh, just based on the, on the inputs that we use. All right, and then the hobo spread. You can see the hobo spread has remained really, really strong. Um, and we expect it to, uh, to drift lower. The forecast here is, is for a modest decline in the hobo spread going forward. I think it's probably gonna be a little bit more substantial than this. I would be really surprised if by the time we get to next July, we're, we're still above 150. Um, I don't know that we're gonna go all the way back down below sort of uh, a dollar or, or drop down to, to 60 cents or something like that. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me if we got back down close to that dollar, dollar 15 level here uh, over the next six months, I would say. Uh, once we kind of get some relief on the on the veg oil side, I think we're already seeing a move in the uh, in, on the energy side. Then maybe that move will accelerate, and in this forecast, will probably look a little bit sharper to the to the downside. And then finally, let's look at our forecast for LCFS credit prices. Uh, here, we're really predicting a, a little bit more substantial decline in LCFS credit prices through 2021. In part, that's driven by uh, the expectation that we're going to have um, a lot of renewable diesel capacity coming on in, in 2021. A lot of that's going to be focused on shipping into the California market. And so to the extent that um, that LCFS credit prices will be a, a function of the supply relative to the need, uh, it looks like that is probably going to shift into not necessarily oversupply, but just more supply relative to the need than we have right now. And that's causing the, the decline in, in the forecast. Again, this isn't a this isn't a huge decline. We're not predicting that prices drop back down into the into the 180s, but uh, probably the 190s, the low 190s by the end of, of 2021. 
All right. With that, I will open it up for any questions we have. Sounds good. So if anyone has questions, drop them in the Q&A section. Um, the first question is, why are the biodiesel renewable diesel margins negative? Uh, so the biodiesel and renewable diesel margins are negative uh, just because that's how the, the economics work. Um, I can actually, let me see if I can get this back up here really quickly. And I, I probably should have shown this before. If you look at, so the chart that I showed you is just the pure production economics for biodiesel and, and renewable diesel. If we look at the margins with credits, um, then you see that that production is, or the, the margins are positive for both. And that really is why we have the credits. And that's why uh, there's so much effort to get the blenders tax credit um, reinstated last year. That dollar a, a gallon makes a huge difference, particularly for, um, for biodiesel producers. But if you just look simply at the at the value of the output and then the cost of the inputs plus um, some assumptions that we make about fixed costs for operating the plant and, and stuff like that, the the implication is that this this production is is does not produce a profit or the production of biofuels does not produce a profit. It requires government support to be profitable. Which was the follow-up question is, why do they continue to produce if it's negative? Right. It's yeah. because of the credits. And in what you saw last year, um, here, sorry to keep switching back and forth here. Um, what you saw last year uh, in, in production, let me see if this is the right chart. No, just this one. So what you saw last year in production in, in 2019, um, we had some real optimism about the restoration of the blenders tax credit in the spring and then through the summer. And then uh, as we came into the fall before December, there was a real concern that the credit was just going to remain lapsed and there were biodiesel producers in particular that were shutting down because without the credit they were unprofitable now the credits continued to trade or there was some value for those credits that continued to trade so it wasn't like the dollar a gallon completely went away we were doing surveys during that time and the credits were trading about 30 cents a gallon so that can that the whole dollar didn't go away, but about 70 cents of it did. And I think you can see the impact on production here, uh, particularly in November is, is that was kind of the time when it looked sort of least likely that the blenders tax credit will uh, would be reinstated. Now, one thing that's really important to note going forward is that um, the, as, as it's currently constructed, I guess, or the, the current reauthorization expires at the end of 2022. And so um, if that goes away or as that goes away, part of the reason that we think that ultimately biodiesel, um, biodiesel producers are going to 
go or biodiesel production capacity is going to need to be rationalized in the end of 2022 is is the lapse in in that credit as biodiesel producers start to look forward into 2023 if congress doesn't do something to reassure them that that credit's going to be there i think that's probably uh for biodiesel producers that are not integrated and can't ship into the california market um, I think those are the guys that are going to ultimately go away. Um, Tori, is it possible that an increasing European demand for renewable diesel may temper the California oversupply? Uh, it It is. Um, I, I think that for uh, the the two major biofuel markets in the U.S., so for, for biodiesel and for, um, for ethanol, um, I think that the potential for export markets to open up and to um, absorb some of this oversupply might be sort of the saving grace is probably a little extreme, but might certainly help with the um, need to rationalize some of, of the current uh, industry capacity. For ethanol, we are projecting uh, basically a 10% decline in, in output year over year in, in 2021 due to the work from home, the adoption of work from home. Um, and then we kind of go back up starting in 22, 2022, in part because of this potential for, for export markets to open up. I think there is the same potential for that to happen in, um, in biodiesel. One thing that you have to remember, the biodiesel market will be a little bit different because you have some pretty staunch competitors in the export market in Argentina and Malaysia and Indonesia. Um, Malaysia and Indonesia have programs, uh, domestic programs that they have kind of paused or they've paused the expansion of um, because the spread between palm oil and, and gas oil has reached a level where it's really costing them a lot of money to uh, just to implement the programs that they have, let alone expand them. And that makes it tough politically for them. Um, so there, for biodiesel, I think the expansion into export markets will be a little bit more difficult than it will be for uh, for ethanol, um, but certainly that potential would exist uh, to keep the industry capacity at, at current levels or at the levels that we assume with the surge in uh, renewable diesel uh, production capacity coming online over the next year or two. Okay, uh, Tori, we're going to go over on this question, but what do you think the new administration's uh, policy, the new administration implies for biofuel policy? So I think in general, they probably will be friendlier towards the biofuel administ the biofuel industry than the last administration. Now, and, and I don't mean that to imply that the last administration was not friendly towards uh, the biofuel industry, but uh, the EPA under the last administration did see and grant a significantly larger number of small refinery exemptions than the prior administration. And I think that's probably the one area where there may be some, some real differences. Um, 
if the if the next administration's EPA really tightens down on on SREs, then I think that you probably have more demand for uh, for biofuel. Now, right now, that's not a change from our current forecast. So our current forecast assumes no impact from SREs because um, the way that uh, court rulings have gone, the uh, the people applying for SREs needed a prior year exemption in order to apply for the current year exemption. What we've seen is a bunch of new applications for prior years so they could get sort of this initial SRE application approved and then get SREs in the current year. And I think that's a risk going forward until we get to the new administration. Once we get to the new administration, I I think that risk probably goes away and we don't have to worry about it um, or we don't have to worry about its impact on our forecast. But in for all intents and purposes, it wouldn't really change our forecast from where we are currently because we're already assuming no impact from SREs. It would just remove that that potential risk. Um, there are other things that the new administration could direct the EPA to do. There was a court ruling um, that required the EPA to add back 500 million gallons of demand that was that was um, that was set aside, I guess, or, or canceled out from the mandates. Um, that probably has a better chance of, of being reinstated going forward under the new administration than it would have under the uh, old administration. All in all, I think it's probably, uh, again, given that our, our assumptions right now are based on no impact from SREs, I think it's probably relatively negligible differences over the next year. But over the next four years, I think there's probably more potential for the mandates to grow more significantly under the new administration than they would under the old administration and potentially to even exceed the, the levels that we're projecting in the out years in our um, in our outlook report. All right. Well, Tori, thank you for that. Um, attendees, thank you for giving us your questions and have a great Thanksgiving week. We'll see you next week. Thank you, Tori. Thanks, George. Thanks, everybody. Have a great holiday.